Hello, and welcome to another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. This week, we're speaking with registered dietitian and podcaster, Rebecca Clyde, about how we can relate to food in a more sustainable and helpful way this year and cooking as well. There are a lot of useful tips in this episode. I'm sure you're going to love it. All right, let's jump right in. Fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the School Nutrition Dietitian. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat today. I wondered if you could just start with how you ended up being interested in dietetics and how you came to be the founder of Nourish Nutrition. Yeah, so I, it's funny, and I didn't know to realize this until I think I was in my nutrition program, but I actually, one of my neighbors growing up is and was a dietitian, I had no idea. So I, I didn't even know what a dietitian was or, you know, this field was until I was in college. I knew I liked science and I liked food and there was this program that combined the two and it was at the college that I was already at. And so that's as simple of a, an origin story as there is. I, it was just, you know, things just kind of came together for that, which was, which was nice. Yeah. And then moving forward with my business, I finished my internship and had a hard time finding a job. And so I was thinking of ways to kind of stay involved while I was looking for a nutrition related or a dietitian job. And in my internship, we had a, um, an assignment to write a blog post, which I thought was just really fun and simple. And so I thought back on that and thought, you know, why don't I start a blog? But I didn't want to do it alone. So I reached out to a couple of friends of mine from my program. And one of my friends and I started a blog that we ran for three years. And then I went back to school and finished with that. And and she, her life kind of took her in a different direction. And so we stopped that and I started mine again. And it, that was Nourish Nutrition. So kind of how things all came together. Sweet. You did better than me. When we had our class on entrepreneurship and trying to use the internet to market what you're doing, our instructor kept telling us she didn't really understand the draw of the internet and that her business was in its, (laughs) it was really thriving in the 80s. And she really didn't have any interest in finding out what was going on in 2000 plus. But anyway, so it's nice that you got uh, some good support and started your business, your vision for your business in undergrad. That's really impressive. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of more of like, oh, it'd be nice to work for myself, but it'd probably take a really long time to do that. But honestly, like I didn't get the jobs that I was hoping for. And so I thought, well, I guess I can just do what I want instead of what I feel like I have to do. So yeah, it's it's interesting how times change and the internet, at least for me, has really opened up my whole career, honestly, which is 
crazy to think of, yeah, what your professor talked about and then the reality now. <laughs> right, absolutely. Well, I primarily focus on school nutrition and best practices related to the work that we do on this podcast, but I wanted to have you on to do a special personal wellness episode. I definitely think that improving your health and nourishing yourself with high quality nutrition can help keep you at the top of your game, but a lot of times there's kind of an obsessive focus on nutrition only as a means to manage weight. So I wanted to have mm -hmm. someone on who specializes more in a more balanced evidence-based approach to why high quality nutrition is of interest to people who are not trying to control their weight or whether or not they benefit in changing your diet if you are in a larger body and you've always been in a larger body and you're pretty sure you're going to stay in a larger body. Can you explain what your food philosophy is and how it informs the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So on Nourish Nutrition, so through my blog, the recipes I create, and then I have a Facebook group that I work with. Everything that I do is for people who are cooking for one. And I think this doesn't necessarily directly answer your question, but I think indirectly it does. So, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of people who may not have planned on being single as an adult or for a long time or life changes and that happens. And, you know, maybe in similar ways as people who live in bodies that might not be as socially um, acceptable or who are kind of dealing with everything that goes along with with living in a body that just you might not be so happy with. It's just kind of coming to terms with your reality and realizing that it doesn't matter what your relationship status is, having a family, not having a family, being in a body that maybe is one that you wanted or maybe one that you didn't particularly want from a young age or whatever, that no matter any of those, we all deserve to eat good food that we like we all deserve to take care of ourselves and and that for for some people people who like to cook or like to eat food a way to take care of yourself is to eat good food and it, it just it looks different for each of us but I think that's something that everybody deserves no matter you know what their body looks like or anything else we're human beings and that's a basic right I really I love that, that everybody deserves to have good food and to take care of themselves. I know in school nutrition in particular, there are a lot of people that know how to cook and maybe for some reason feel like it's not worth taking out the time to cook just for themselves. So maybe they'll cook for family, they'll cook for friends, but when it's just them, they don't do it. So one of the things that I liked on your site is that you explain how cooking for one doesn't have to be a dreaded chore and that there are tips and tricks to make it more simple so that you too, even though it's just you, get to enjoy that human right to have good food that you enjoy. Are there any basic tips or tricks you could share with us about simplifying cooking for one? Yeah, the foundation of my philosophy for cooking really lies in having a well-stocked pantry. So you can throw a dinner together that is something that's exciting, but also doesn't require a trip to the grocery store for one or two random ingredients. 
So you can throw something together without planning ahead of time because we see so much everywhere that meal planning is so important and it's everything. And, you know, I think there is some truth to that. Meal planning can make things easier in a lot of ways, but the reality is like a lot of us aren't meal planning. And even though I believe in it, for example, and have found a lot of benefits that come from it, I don't plan out my meals all the time. It, it kind of depends on on what's going on. And there's so many other factors that come into play. But I think having food on hand that you can throw something together is really helpful because that way you can feel confident in what you're eating and feel like you had the opportunity to make that decision for yourself as opposed to, oh, shoot, it's whatever time I'm hungry. I don't have any time. Now I'm just going to have to do X, Y, or Z, even though it's not what I want to do because I don't have time or anything planned. So that's a way to, you know, help with that and still give yourself the opportunity to, to choose, which I think is powerful. Well, when it comes to just working with what you have, how do you mm-hmm. approach that? I know there are a lot of people who are good at basically intuitive cooking where mm-hmm. you could give them anything and what they end up with looks intentional and they get the results that they're expecting. For people who maybe aren't as confident in their skill set, like I'm not I'm not awesome in the kitchen. I can follow mm-hmm. directions. I can add. So yeah, I can follow a recipe. But when it comes to putting things together creatively, that kind of freaks me out. So what can people like me do? Yeah, yeah, I I hear that a lot. I think there's a lot of freedom that comes with feeling confident in the kitchen and having experience cooking and, and then, you know, doing that a little bit more intuitively. And so without that background, it can be so overwhelming. So a couple of things that I found to be helpful are based off of what I have in my pantry and, you know, what I would encourage others to have in their pantry. I really like the idea of formula meals. So, for example, you come home, you've got a couple of things, you know, around the kitchen that you can make. You don't know what you're going to make. The, the formula would be some sort of grain, a vegetable, and a protein. And, and you can adjust that as you want to. So you could do pasta. So there's your grain with the pasta. If you've got frozen vegetables, you can use those. If you don't, don't feel bad about not having vegetables on hand. And, you know, some sort of protein, whether that's frozen meat, whether that's something that was cooked up before and you have leftovers. And then you can add sauces or anything to that. And then a burrito bowl, for example, again, have some sort of grain, maybe beans, and that is easy and something you can have in your pantry. And then salsa and some other vegetables or cheese or whatever it is that you want. So kind of thinking it in terms of having some sort of grain, having some sort of vegetable, having some sort of protein, and adjusting that based off of what you have, your preferences. And, and that's a good place to start, just so there's something going on, uh, some direction that you have to move forward with and it's less overwhelming that makes a lot of sense yeah I definitely am a big fan of structure so I like the concept of a formula meal when it comes to you mentioned sauces so if you're just coming home and trying to make something are you is a marinade out is the best thing to do when you know you're going to be cooking the food quickly to put the sauce on top of the food or should you be trying to get the flavors to penetrate the food while you're cooking it? 
Oh, you know, that's not a question that I've thought of before. So I think it kind of just depends on what sounds good to you in that moment and also what you have on hand. So, for example, I, I often have citrus in my kitchen. So I've got lemons and limes around and thinking of pasta, just use some of the pasta water for that sauce and then add some lemon and some Parmesan cheese and maybe some Italian seasoning or something. And that would all be added at the end. So your pasta wouldn't be cooking in that for a long time or for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. But if you wanted to have something that tastes a little bit slower cooked, you could do the same thing with pasta sauce and have, have the meat or sauteing in that for a little bit. I would say, depending on the um, protein that you're adding, that, that might determine, you know, if you're going to cook something a little bit longer. So I'm kind of thinking of lentils off the top of my head. If I were making something with lentils, first of all, having some sort of sauce, that's going to help soften those lentils. So I might as well use um, some sort of broth or some flavored something to cook those in because it's going to infuse the flavor in that. Because lentils are, they can, you know, and beans are the same way. They can be so boring and not taste like much at all, or they can have a lot of flavor. And so those are ingredients that I would encourage, you know, kind of cooking them fully in as opposed to adding that at the end. So that answer question kind of not specifically. (laughs) (laughs) And I have this maybe a dumb question. You said pasta water. Why did you use the pasta water and not just water? What does that do? Oh, yeah, I okay, this is I wasn't I didn't cook much as a kid. And I don't know why. But I remember reading in some magazine of my mom's as a kid, an article in it about cooking pasta. And so they were like talking to some Italian old grandmother chef or something. And her trick was to add back some of the pasta water. And the power of that is adding that, keeping that starch. So some of the starch from the pasta is lost in the water. But if you're adding that back, it's, it's making it really thick and creamy without having to add additional cream, for example, or a bunch of other ingredients. It's just using what you have and it makes it really silky and, and can really help bind the sauce or whatever it is that you're adding to your pasta to the pasta. It's, it's a really simple, easy trick, but it can make a huge difference. Oh, I love that. That's what I'm really, I feel like I'm lacking is more tips like that. It's almost like food science, basically, but it's stuff Mm -hmm. that other people seem to just know. My mom wasn't really into cooking. She had plans to marry rich and never have to cook. And that didn't (laughs) pan out because she fell in love with just like a regular working class person. And so she didn't even start (laughs) attempting to cook until she was already married. And her learning to cook late in life has definitely affected how much my siblings know about cooking. So we we do okay. I mean, we're not going to starve to death and we can certainly follow directions, but we don't know things like that. So yeah. I think we get freaked out about cooking with no defined guidelines. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think at least for me, it's come down to, you know, just like, listening to food podcasts. I love the Milk Street podcast. So it's, 
Christopher Kimball, who is the guy who started America's Test Kitchen, this is his new venture, and they have a Q&A section of it, and I learn a lot from that. The Food Lab is a cookbook that I really like, and it, and it kind of combines the food science with the, I guess, the practical aspect of, of cooking, which I think really is really interesting, especially as a dietitian who got into it because of science and, and food being combined. But the, yeah, there's lots of resources out there and it's hard to know what to look for until you're exposed to that, I think. Right. Th- those are great. I'm going to check those out. You said Milk Street? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So okay. Milk Street, they've got a magazine, they've got a podcast, they've got cookbooks, YouTube channel is like so many different things. Okay, fantastic. That's something I need to pursue because uh, food science wasn't a major focus in my program. I mean, it was there, and I definitely, yeah. it's also, it's on the RD exam, so I know mm-hmm. a lot about all the reasons why a cake might fall, but <laughs> that's... And I uh, don't. <laughs> well, I don't know why that was on so many of the practice exams. I'm like, oh my God, there's a hundred reasons a cake could fall, but anyway, that's that not so super funny. useful when I'm <laughs> actually just trying to make dinner. I think to yeah. a large extent, it's a mindset. If I could just get beyond the fear of waste and just start experimenting and checking out resources and then going into the kitchen, I could build up that confidence. You know, that's a really good point. Because I think at least for me and, you know, for anybody who is cooking for one, that's a big barrier for a lot of people is, you know, the food waste, whether that's, you know, from for whatever reason you feel passionate about reducing that. And it can be overwhelming because you really, you want to cook something that's going to taste good and it's going to be, you know, you'll leave feeling satisfied. But at the same time, you don't really know how something is going to turn out until you're there. And so that's really overwhelming. And I think, you know, what you brought up before, it kind of got me thinking about, you know, if you're short on time, which most of us are, your cooking is is kind of a survival mechanism. Like you're just doing the bare minimum of what, you know, you can fit within the time that you have, or, you, you know, you don't have much time, so you don't have much that you can do. And that's not the time to experiment necessarily. That's not the time to like, look stuff up and to figure to answer all of those questions. And so, you know, finding time outside of the those necessary cooking times could be a place to, to explore that a little bit more. And I was going to say too, so on my podcast is the Table for One podcast. And on my next episode, we address the question of like, I don't know how to cook. What do I do? And I have um, another dietitian who is a chef as well. She comes and shares lots of great tips. So that oh, could be helpful Do you as know well. what episode number that's going to be in case somebody looks for it after? Yeah. So it's going to be episode seven, I think. But if you're listening to it on iTunes, it's they don't necessarily number them. The title is like, what do I do if I don't know how to cook? Or okay, that's, perfect. <laughs> yeah. that's, the, that's the perfect title. Yeah, I love the yeah. idea of creating resources that can be listened to while people are commuting or driving or doing whatever it is, because I just don't see fitting it in. I want to read more about these cooking tips, but I know that's probably not going to happen. If I can get it in an audiobook, it will happen. But I can absolutely look into podcasts that address this knowledge deficit that I have. 
So I yeah. think it's fantastic that you've created a podcast about cooking for one. This is a resource I totally, well, honestly, that I still need. Before I got married, I needed it because I was always by myself cooking at home. And mm-hmm. now I need it because my husband eats completely differently from me. And we almost never eat the same thing. So I still will be cooking for one, possibly forever. So I'm definitely going to be listening. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, this is more universal than just for people who are, you know, maybe live alone or cooking for one. It's, you know, if you're cooking for two or three, even if you're cooking for a family, the whole point of uh, information that I share in the topics that we have is just to make cooking something to look forward to and to find the joy in and also to make it actually fit within your life. Because I think that's what's missing in a lot of the discussions and talks about food is it's do this and do that. And you have to do all of these things, you know, like like taking a day and meal prepping all of your food. Like I'm not going to take my weekend, <laughs> take hours out of my weekend to do that. That's not reasonable right. for me. And And it's okay. It's okay for you to feel that way, just to kind of give permission Right. all of that. I definitely agree. I think that eating should be a fun thing. It should be a joyful thing. And there shouldn't be a lot of stress around eating. But there is. And part of that is people feeling like there are a lot of shoulds and Uh thinking that there are these obligations rather than opportunities and things that you can do or you cannot do. It's up to you. You are the captain of your life. You should do what you want to do, honestly. But if you can find healthful activities that you can actually enjoy that aren't taking you away from things that you would rather be doing, it's just all the better. Like it's all gravy then. But I don't think, especially when people are giving advice about healthy eating. I don't think that focus on how can we make this easy? How can we make this pleasurable? It isn't always there. It's always, well, if you want this result, you must do blah, blah, blah. You should be doing yada, yada. When in reality, if a habit is not enjoyable, it's probably not going to last. And I personally don't want to live that way. I don't want most of my days to be full of things that are dreaded obligations. Yeah. Well, and I think too, we just, yeah, we're not going to follow through with things that we don't really want to do. And I think on the other end too, like there are going to be times where you have to find something to eat and it's not going to be enjoyable for whatever reason or another, but to, you know, have that be the exception as opposed to the rule, it just opens things up for you to be able to find that enjoyment in food. And yeah, I'm right with you. I, there's so many things out there that really just add stress. And you can see it right away in people's eyes and just the way that they're, you know, that their bodies are reacting to saying that. So if you are listening to this and and wondering, well, is what I'm doing stressing me out? Is it helping me? Pay attention to your body's reaction or what goes through your mind right away. If you say, okay, well, I have to go and plan my meals for the week. If that's a little bit exciting and if you're looking forward to that, that's great. And, you know, that's something to continue. But if you think, okay, well, this is what, like you said, this is what I should do, this is what I've got to do. And you're like dragging your feet. And, you know, I mean, even things that you enjoy are not always going to be something that's exciting. But if you find yourself dreading something over and over and over again, maybe it's time to check in and, and to evaluate how it's working for you. Right. 
and to acknowledge that there's probably another way to do it. It isn't that you have to completely ditch the plan. Like maybe there's another way you can approach this task if it is something that's important to you. So I know I work with a lot of people who are focused on trying to manage a health condition and they want to feel better and they want to have more energy. And there are cases where food is definitely part of that solution. But because of the way eating a more quote-unquote healthy diet has been presented to them, it has no appeal, but they want the outcomes. So I try Mm -hmm. to focus on ways to get to the goal that is important to them that doesn't incorporate unnecessary stress and obligations. So Mm -hmm. I know you're also a health at every size practitioner. Can you explain what the Hayes approach is all about and who it's meant to help? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So at least how I interpret it is it's really a means of separating health from body size, from recognizing that eating foods that are nourishing, that taste good to you, that are enjoyable to you, that's not necessarily well. And also like movement, that's not necessarily going to lead to any particular weight and it's just kind of separating our habits from our weight and recognizing also that health conditions and diseases are not necessarily because of our weight. There's so many other factors there. We don't look at stress and the stigma and all of these other negative aspects of living in certain bodies or just living in this world that is so focused and obsessed with weight and and our habits and everything and we we don't focus on that when those are things that have a bigger impact on our health and our well-being than our weight itself does and i think it's just really helpful to separate worth and weight and habits from each other and to realize that regardless of what my weight is i deserve to eat food that i like that's going to be good for my body whether that's following um a prescriptive diet to help manage a disease or whether it's experimenting with different foods that you've avoided in the past because they were quote unquote unhealthy and, and that is something that was really stressful to you. So, you know, end of the day, just separating body size and habits and realizing that one does not necessarily affect the other in the way that we have been told that they do. Right. And it's really interesting how removing restrictions can lead to moderation and that it is labeling things as good and bad and obsessing that tends to lead to overindulgence. And when you give yourself permission to eat and you really tune into how you feel when you eat, your choices may be completely different because when you make a decision in your head versus in your body, it's just totally different. It's totally different. I think another thing that's important to consider with this, and I think this is the absolute hardest part, is that we're so conditioned to expect fast results for everything. You know, there's something really sexy about being able to change whatever it is that you want to in a week or, you know, a month or something. But unfortunately, that's not how it works for 
you know, eating intuitively. And you're not going to just be able to say, oh, I can eat whatever I want. and Therefore, you know, I'm going to improve my relationship with food and all of this stuff right away. It's not going to happen that way. And if I give myself permission to eat anything, that means I'm going to crave only whatever it is that I would imagine to be healthy in a week or two. That's not how it goes. And the reason that we tend to crave more balanced foods, and and I'm saying balance in terms of over time as opposed to just one meal or one day even, is because our bodies know what it needs to function well. And our bodies are built in a way to help preserve our bodies and our functions. And so our bodies are going to tell us what it needs. And again, over time, that's going to be a wider variety of food. But on the flip side of that, if you know, within this idea of like, I have to restrict in order to be able to get at whatever it is that I want out of it, probably change my body size. Um, you know, our, we, we tend to rebel whether <laughs> we want to or not, but we tend to rebel against these restrictions or, or feeling like we have to do something. So whether that's coming from some guru or from yourself, our bodies are going to rebel against that, especially if it's something that we're, if we're restricting a food that we really like or have liked, mm-hmm. because maybe you think that you can't control yourself around it. But that feeling of lack of control really comes from labeling it as something that's really bad. And then you just become preoccupied with it, which is a body's normal response to restriction. And, and starvation, obviously, those are not the same, but our bodies kind of respond to restrictive tendencies the same way that it responds to starvation by getting us obsessed about those foods. And that's what leads to this whole dieting, binging cycle being a cycle because that's that's what happens. And, and then we're led to believe that it's our fault when, in fact, it's, you know, diet programs are made to, to have us do that. So we keep coming back. Right. And because that negative messaging and that tendency toward looking to dieting as a way to start a healthy change, because it's everywhere, Mm -hmm. what concerns me is that this type of diet thinking can be passed on to children in our homes and our communities as legitimate as science-based as evidence-based when it isn't and we definitely Mm -hmm. want to be aware because like you said it's a process you can't purge that thinking from yourself overnight but we can Mm -hmm. try and be cognizant of what messaging we are sending out to the children around us because the best thing we could do for them is encourage them to tune into their own bodies when they're eating, eating when they want to eat, which that's a whole nother issue since so many times there's outside cues that dictate when we eat. But teaching Mm -hmm. them that if there's something you absolutely don't want, we're not going to force you to have it. We want to encourage them to follow their own impulses. So like if somebody is saying, I just absolutely don't want the broccoli, I don't think it's helpful to force them or try and bribe them to do it. We just need to give a variety of options so that they can select what appeals to them. 
of course, you still want them to eat fruits and vegetables, but not everyone's going to like every fruit and vegetable on the planet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think, too, especially for women, there there's a huge sense of morality and also a feeling of, like, worth that comes from, you know, prescribing to these ideals that just don't benefit us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like... Like, you're going to be more successful if you change your weight. Like, you're going to be able to be loved by changing your weight. And we see it in so many different ways, whether they're, like, in, in TV shows by seeing the personalities and characters um, and experiences of different characters or in advertisements and seeing, you know, like, how happy people are by eating certain foods and then, like, not happy or whatever, eating others and and the ways that we talk to ourselves and to others. And, and even if you don't say those things out loud, like this, those messages are still being transferred to kids. Some kids start hating their bodies at like five or six years old. Like There's so many things that their brains are not evolved or, you know, have enough time to grow to be able to do, but they can still hate their bodies that young. It's a hundred percent because of what they see around them. And that that's really disturbing because your mm-hmm. sense of self definitely affects your ability to thrive. So yeah. a lot of the children that we work with, they're already in larger bodies. And so they're already dealing with weight stigma. We don't want to add to that. And there's research that shows people who are bullied for their weight and people who are criticized, whether that comes from someone who thinks they have good intentions or not. It does not lead to weight loss. It leads to weight gain. So if we imagine that body shaming people is going to make them be more restrictive and eventually lead to them being in a smaller body, that isn't how it works. It causes mm-hmm. stress levels to increase, which tends to lead to more binging. And it just in no way benefits the person that you're delivering the message to. So if that's something we're telling ourselves, we need to look at the research and realize that there's no evidence to support that that is a thing. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, there's a lot of research out there that can be really confusing or misleading to this point because they're not measuring for any stigma, any shame, any, any of that, those internal feelings that go on in our heads. And they're not measuring their food intake for very long. And so saying that a diet works for six months is so not helpful because, I mean, people can do anything for a short amount of time, but that does not lead to out positive health outcomes in the long term. It does the opposite. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's nuanced and it's difficult. Yeah. Is yeah, absolutely. Health outcomes that lasts you a a lifetime. So one of the things I really like about the health at every size approach, there's a focus on joyful movement, not exercise being framed as something that you just force yourself to do. And I Mm -hmm. think with everything, if something is fun, it's going to be easier to engage in. I mean, it's going to be something you do for the sake of doing it. So it just naturally becomes part of your life rather than selecting something that you feel like will have the maximum calorie burn that you don't enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. And again, you know, like you said, you're not going to stick to something if it's miserable, (laughs) not at all. 
And if you do, then it's that misery is going to bleed into other aspects of your life. And, and it doesn't help, doesn't help you in the long run. Yeah. Or even then it doesn't help you in the short run either, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you're miserable, then really what's the point? And yo-yoing with your weight has been shown to be a health hazard. So because these dips or the temporary reduction in weight is temporary, it's even more harmful than just maintaining. So Mm -hmm. I, I wish there was greater awareness around that. But for, where did that thought go? There was something else I did want to ask you about that is, oh, this was it, completely unrelated, uh, was that you focus also on your site on really appealing food presentation and you specialize in food photography. So that Mm -hmm. to me does tie into understanding that eating food should be pleasurable and it's a full experience. And I think that is one weakness that sometimes I see in public health arenas is that people don't do a great job of marketing eating that they think is going to be good for the body. Like it's just, Mm -hmm. hey, it's this obligation. It's not fun. It's not pretty. It's not appealing. But what you do with food photography is really impressive. Like the marketing that people typically do in restaurants, I don't always see in other food service operations where just keeping people in one piece is the focus. Like you may not see food being arranged in a beautiful way at a long-term care facility or maybe at a detention center or something. So what led you to be interested in food photography, even though your focus is not on restrictive eating or making food good or bad? Why do you think presentation matters? Oh, yeah, that's such a good question. I think it's a little bit nuanced too. at least least how I've kind of how my beliefs about it have um, shaped out. So as far as food photography goes, so I, I started a blog with a friend and I already had a nice camera at that point. And so you know, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is what I can do. I know how to use my camera. And I started taking pictures and realized that it was not how I imagined it to be. Mm-hmm. And so that's, for me, I, I like to be creative and to express myself in that way. And so this has been an opportunity for me to, to express that creative side. But I'll be honest, like this, the focus on presenting food in, in a really appealing way you know, through taking good food photos has been a little bit difficult for me just because we see on social media so much and in so many areas of our life like this, this super filtered or like not real presentation. And, you know, like that's what food photos are. Not that I, I don't use any like fake food in mine or do anything that makes the food inedible unless it's been sitting out for way too long because it took me a long time to, to get the shot. But not in that way, but at the same time, like the food that I make, especially because it's reheated from that same shoot, doesn't look that way. So I I do struggle with that because I want to show, you know, that side of, of the reality. But at the same time, what it, at least in my mind, what things come down to is unless you know that you really like a food, unless you've had before, and especially if it's in a case of you know, trying a totally, not even just a different recipe, but a different food. So maybe you're somebody who hasn't tried a lot of vegetables that you really like. If you see a picture of, of 
whatever vegetable that doesn't look that appealing if it's in kind of dark lighting and if it's not highlighted and looks something that is going to catch your attention and make you want to try it, you're not going to want to try that food. So I think there's kind of a balance to that. There is definitely a place where if you're trying something new or trying to share um, ingredients or fruits or vegetables that might not be so well received, you're presenting it in a way that's going to make it more appealing to people. And I think that's important. Right. I definitely like the idea of using imagery to make the child want to try the vegetables instead of trying to make that decision for them and kind of push them to do it. Because I think everybody is more on board with decisions that they feel like they have ownership of and children Mm -hmm. who are school age are looking for ways to exert their independence. And there's so much of their day that they don't have control over. I think the cafeteria is a great place for them to be given some autonomy, to make some decisions that they can take ownership of. And if you could get them to want the broccoli instead of forcing them to eat the broccoli, that's definitely a better way to approach it. I know not everybody has money in their budget to hire a professional food photographer. How would you recommend people get started if they're trying to present their food in the best way possible in their marketing materials or on their menu boards or something like that? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. So um, I, as far as like basic tips go, you don't, you don't need a fancy camera at all. I would say use what you have and make the most out of the light that you have. So I would say set up next to a big bright window have the food, have the, the light or the window behind the food. So like you're standing facing the food and then the window is behind you. You can get a picture from that direction or you can also get it where you're standing in front of the food and the light is to the side. Those are two good placements um, to get good lighting. And I, I, you know, it really comes down to lighting mm-hmm. and, and that could be free. If um, you don't have good windows inside, then I, you know, you can go outside I would recommend instead of standing directly under the sun, find the shade of a tree or something that's not directly blocking the sun. That helps diffuse the light a little bit and it's going to make the light less harsh is what it's going to do. And so that's really helpful. So I, I would say like really, really simple tip is to be aware of the light that you're using and to, to use that. A photo could be set up the exact same way in a dark room and then one with good lighting and, and you know, taken with your phone for both of those. There's going to be a huge difference in how that food looks in both of those photos, and that's going to be the most noticeable. Oh, that's a great tip. Now, I saw on your site you also have a lot of videos on YouTube, really easy to take in recipe videos. What is the mm-hmm. key to doing that. I've seen people do it a lot of different ways. I really like the top down ones, but Mm -hmm. if you want to give your customers a behind the scenes look at a recipe, but you don't have a tremendous budget for it, is it even possible? Is that something you would do? Or like, do you have a whole crew or do you do yours yourself? Oh yeah. Good question. So I, I do, I do mine myself and I, 
just bought a second camera so I can get um, an, an overhead angle and then one on the side. And that's obviously not budget friendly. <laughs> but I, you know, it takes a lot of editing and a lot of time. And, and some of the ed- editing software can be kind of expensive. So that wouldn't necessarily be budget friendly. So I, I guess what I would really recommend as far as a budget friendly way to take videos is to just take a video of yourself making something. You can do it overhead where you're just getting, we call those hands and pans videos that works just fine. Or you can take it, you know, like cooking style video. And I I like those ideas better because you don't have to edit them necessarily. Facebook live is a great opportunity to have something that is so not perfect and not expected to be perfect because it's live and things just happen. So that would be a good option as well. But yeah, I I think, you know, there's so many different levels there. And to be really simple, just don't edit anything and just take a a video. Obviously, it's not going to be less than a minute because you can't do much of anything in less than a minute without editing a lot. But yeah, I, I would say just take a video overhead and just run straight through that. Choose really simple recipes. Um, that you could throw together fairly quickly to show that side. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing those tips with us. Where does everybody find you online? And if they wanted to get some instruction directly from you, what are their options? Yeah, so I think the easiest ways to um, kind of find me online are to go to my website. So you can go to nutritionblog.com. Fantastic. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, this was really fun. I We got to talk about all of the things that I do for my business, which I've never been able to talk about all at once. So <laughs> that was really fun. I found Rebecca's tips so helpful. I'm excited to report that I held my first dinner party in my new neighborhood not long after this interview. Rebecca was right to a large extent, just having that sense of self-efficacy totally changes how you relate to cooking. So I hope you also feel inspired to pamper yourself with some home cooking. If you were thinking that's something that you would like to do this year, carving out the time for yourself, if that's something you think you could truly enjoy. And if not, exploring other ways to nourish yourself that fit with your lifestyle. Next week is going to mark the end of this body positive special. I am really enjoying the feedback I'm getting from people. So I'm interested to see if this is something that people would like to revisit next January. Either way, in the month of February, we're going to be diving back in to different areas of school nutrition, in particular focusing on procurement because this time of year, it really is time to be thinking about what will be served the following school year. Remember, the only fee for this show is that if you find any value in an episode, hopefully that'll be every episode, you share it with others. Thank you so much for joining me. See you next time.